Good morning, Seven Mile Road. Thank you, Arun. Uh, So good to be with you and to open the scriptures together this morning. Uh, In the life of the church, the traditional church calendar, we're in the midst of what is known as ordinary time. Ordinary time. It's that that season in the life of the church that's it's not Easter, it's it's not Christmas time, it's not the time of penance that leads up in Advent or in Lent. It's just the counting of weeks in the ordinary. And in the life of the church calendar, that's where we are right now. And isn't that just the perfect phrase, right? Ordinary time, just the counting of weeks. Because the truth is there are some standout moments in life, some moments that stand out, some moments where uh, there's something major happening that we're not going to soon forget. But the truth is that the vast majority of our moments are very forgettable. They're incredibly ordinary. We're just piling up lots of seconds and minutes and hours that will be forgotten for the most part. It's true that you're going to spend 1,300 days eating. If you piled up all the moments of just sitting down to a meal, 1,300 days straight through eating, 1,583 days driving, 3,765 days working, 375 days cleaning your house, just piled up minutes, hours, picking up socks and putting away laundry and 79 days standing at your sink, brushing your teeth. You see, so much of life is so ordinary. And I just want us to wrestle with this fact today. As as we come to the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah, there's this reality that it's in the ho-hum ordinariness of life that compromise often sneaks in. It often advances and influences that in moments of either feasting or of fasting, there are moments of intensity where there's, there's either a flood or a drought. In those moments, we pray and we lean in and we have intensity and we look back and we go, that was a memorable moment where God was moving and I was passionate and, and that was a unique moment that I won't forget. But in the ordinariness of life, the ho-hum of brushing my teeth, of folding my shorts and putting them away. That it's in those moments that oftentimes we begin to compromise, to renegotiate. It's almost like things recede. The water levels recede to the lowest common denominator. And as we come to the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah, this is the very thing we're going to stare into in the final chapter because Nehemiah has been a story of exceptional and memorable moments. A very intense couple of months a charismatic leader who rallies the people and says, we need to do a great work that will be remembered for generations. And they did it. And last week we were coming to the conclusion is two Thanksgiving choirs are marching around the city and everybody is singing and their hands are open and they're celebrating. These are memorable moments. And then chapter 13 in many ways is an anti-climax. Nehemiah leaves. He's gone for, we don't know how long, but it seems at least several years. And when he comes back and intersects with the people's lives, what he finds is that in the ho-hum, the ordinary, the forgotten moments, the people have begun to compromise. 
They have not stayed true to their commitments to the Lord. And so what we are going to receive is an invitation in Nehemiah chapter 13 about how to counteract the compromise. How to, how to deal with the ways that our hearts begin to renegotiate in the ho-hum of the everyday life. And what we are going to see is this. If we are going to counteract compromise, we need continual cleansing. And we're going to see that as Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and introduces continual cleansing. To say we are a people that are going to stand guard and to fight for what God would have us to be even when life is kind of forgettable. Even when the moments are slipping through our fingers. So what I'm going to invite us to do is to study Nehemiah 13 and pay attention in what areas and in what ways is Nehemiah going to challenge us towards continual cleansing to keep compromise at bay and to be wholehearted disciples, whether it's a memorable moment or a forgettable one, we are disciples that are leaning in right there in the ordinariness of everyday life. So with that being said, I'm going to invite you to dig into Nehemiah chapter 13 with me as we bring this study of the book of Nehemiah to a close. Grab your Bibles and open to Nehemiah 13. I'm going to start by reading the first 14 verses of this chapter, and that's going to set up the first area of continual cleansing. Just before I read those verses, permit me to remind you of what the prophet Isaiah says. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. We would be a wise people to in, in exciting moments and in ordinary moments to prioritize God's word, to listen Even now, would you lend your ear and your heart to the text with me as we start in verse 1 of chapter 13. It says this, On that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. Now, that day is a generic stock phrase here. We're not sure what day they're talking about. It's just some liturgical moment where where the Bible is open, the scriptures are open, and the people are reading. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, Now, you'll remember, Tobiah has been the enemy of Nehemiah all the way throughout this journey, resisting the work of God and the building of the wall and the people of God. Well, it says in verse 5, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, says Nehemiah. He says, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So while Nehemiah was away, Eliashib the priest actually allowed Tobiah, the enemy of the people of God, to begin to either office or live, to spend time in, to have actual space in the temple that is his and his uniquely. Well, verse 8, Nehemiah says, I was very angry. I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. 
Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? I want to pause it just so so we're tracking along. This question that he just posed in verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? Is summarizing all that's going on in these first 14 verses. That's what he's been pressing towards. He says, And I I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. And then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. You see, in the first 14 verses, the first area of continual cleansing, the first area where Nehemiah presses in, where compromise has begun to settle down into the hearts and the lives of the people of God, is in the area of our worship. The first area where we, like they, need to be on guard against compromise is the compromise where we begin to to give away and to renegotiate the ways that we engage as a community in worship. It was going on in several ways in this this community. The first was they had begun to, to renegotiate. They began to compromise about the nature of the community of worship. Did you hear it right at the beginning? When he says that they learned that there should not be an Ammonite or a Moabite in worship, so they removed themselves from those of foreign descent. What's going on there? Is this just a pure racial play? The Israelites thinking our race isn't better, and so we're going to separate ourselves from every other race. That's not the case. We actually know that previously in biblical history that Ruth was a Moabite, and Ruth was, was... entered into the actual lineage of Jesus himself, that she was welcomed, but it was because of the way she came. She, she, in the book of Ruth, said, I actually, I come and I want your God to be my God and your people to be my people. She came with a heart to be united to God and his people and say, I want my identity to be forged here. You see, and she was welcomed because God welcomes all with a heart, Old Testament and new, that want him. But here, what he's talking about is that here they The people of God are being reestablished in Jerusalem and they're tempted to say, well, you and your gods and your customs, you can get integrated here. However you worship is fine with you and however we worship is fine with us. We're all just one big happy family. And into that space, Nehemiah says, no, no, no. Being clear about who is in the community, who is really aligned with what the scriptures have said and who God has revealed himself to be. That's what makes us who we are. You see, the first way that we have continual cleansing on what is the body of worship, what is the community, is that we're, we're clear about what are the delineations of what make up this community. You experience this in some ways at Seven Mile Road. One of the ways we try to, try to resist the compromise of beginning to say, well, however you want to worship, whoever you want to worship, that we actually hold to purity of worship, of saying we want to be committed to the God of the Bible who's revealed himself and the way that he's revealed himself. One of the ways that shows up in worship every week for us is the way that we fence the table of communion. When we're worshiping together in person, you have heard us say things like, 
this meal as we set the table for communion is for all those who have trusted in Jesus. And we say, if that's not you, we're so glad you're here. You are our very important guest. But we're going to ask that you refrain from taking this meal. You see, when we're fencing the table, we're saying this meal is for some and not for others. That's not to be divisive and it's not to be awkward. It is to say we actually take what God has revealed to be true in the scripture seriously. There are some that are in and there are some that are out. And God is clear about how that, how that gets defined. And it's actually defined by virtue of how he has forged covenant. In the Old Testament, it was by, by submitting to Yahweh that finds his fullness in Jesus. And so now we, by confessing Jesus, we are knit into the family of God. We need to be clear that God has, clar- he has clarity around what is the worshiping community. That's part of the way that we resist compromise of beginning to lay down what God has said to be true, but saying, no, 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 let's be clear. We don't want to be ungracious, but we want to be clear about what makes a a cleanse, a, a continually cleansed body that is gathering in worship. But that's not the only way that continual cleansing happens in this verses as it relates to worship. The second was the leadership. This whole debacle with Tobiah being invited into the temple. The very chamber where the, the tithes and offerings used to be brought. Now Tobiah lives there. All his household furniture is in there. And as we read in verse 8 and following Nehemiah was very angry and he pulled a Jesus. You know, when Jesus comes and cleanses the tables and flips tables, when he cleanses the temple and flips tables, that we see that Nehemiah shows up and he throws furniture out. He says, you've got to get out of here. What's going on there? The second piece of experiencing the continual cleansing and worship is that we have to hold leadership accountable. This means that the elders of this body, it means house church shepherds, they need to be held to a to a high standard, not perfect. We're not demanding perfection from our leaders, but I need you, Seven Mile Road, to hold your leaders to a a high standard, to say that there must be accountability. If we're going to be a community that resists compromise, we need leaders that look like what the scriptures call leaders to be, that you can almost feel the compromise in Nehemiah, that Eliashib was a, a distant family member to Tobiah. And after Nehemiah left, I could imagine him talking himself into this, going, you know, well, Tobiah has political power and previously he was against us, but maybe we could forge some partnership and we'll invite him in. And even though he's an Ammonite and he's even supposed to be worshiping with us in this way, maybe we'll, we'll show the community how progressive we are and how we're advancing past our old structures. And there's this compromise that starts to reshape the way they think about leadership in the life of the community. And and God's heart is, no, 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 continual cleansing. Don't begin to compromise just because life has settled down into kind of these ordinary, ho-hum, forgettable moments. Well, the last note as it relates to our worship, and and probably the most poignant for us as a community, is, is actually around the gathering itself. Did you hear at the conclusion of these verses that we were just reading and looking at that he found that that the In verse 10, he says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work, they fled back to their fields. In essence, what happened was after Nehemiah left, they they stopped collecting the tithes and the people didn't continue to generously give. And as a result, the gathering of worship actually began to, to disintegrate. The people weren't gathering and they weren't singing and they weren't prepared that their regular gathered worship had fallen on hard times. 
Uh, you see, the truth is that if we're going to experience ongoing cleansing, we need to be a people that prioritize the gathering, that come together to worship. They're, they noted the singers and the Levites specifically. Those are the ones that were leading in worship and gathering the people together to celebrate who God is. Let me summarize all of this. This first point is that we need continual cleansing in the area of our worship. Let me ask you a question. Is your most passionate, devoted moments of of enjoying God, are those moments in the past tense for you? When you think about the times that you were most passionate and most excited about God, do you talk about it in the past tense? Like when you were in that campus ministry, when that person was discipling you, when you first started to read the Bible and it was so electric for you, do you talk about it like it's, it's back in the rearview mirror somewhere? That worship is no longer as central to your life and community and prayer and leaning in and, and giving generously and, and loving to be alone with God. Like if those things used to be a really meaningful part of your life, but now they're not. This text is talking to you. It's asking the question, how and when and why did you start to compromise? Was it some new stage of life? Work got intense, and so, you know, it's just for a little while, but I can't continue to prioritize worship and community and really leaning in with God because I've got so much else on my plate. Maybe... You've got little kids at home or maybe the children are getting a little older and getting invested in other things. And may, What is it that has caused you to begin to renegotiate in the ordinariness of life? You've started going, well, there's just, there's just so many other things. And so as a result, I've begun to renegotiate. I've begun to compromise. The invitation is Nehemiah steps back into the journey. Is no, no, listen, we are a worshiping people. And even when it's not the exciting moments where we're up on the rooftop and the choirs are singing, when it's just the ordinary stuff of life, we still prioritize this together. We lean in and we fight for it. We make sure that we, we carve out the time. We put forward the energy. We continue to make effort with our house church. We continue to confess our sin. We continue to lean in because this is what shapes our identity as a people. The first note that emerges from this text is that if we are going to experience continual cleansing that staves off and keeps compromise at bay, it has to happen in the area of our worship. Secondly, Secondly is this, we need the continual cleansing of our work. Let me read verses 15 to 22 for us. It says this, In those days I, I saw in Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath. If you've got your Bible and you do this sort of thing, I'd encourage you to just make little notes every time you see Sabbath. It says, They were bringing in heaps of grain and loading on their donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and they sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not your God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it grows dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after 
the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'm going to lay hands on you. <laughs> Nehemiah is serious about this. And he's, uh, he says, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I think Nehemiah is making a point. Ten times he mentioned the Sabbath in this passage. Ultimately, the people have become so committed to advancement and to making a profit that they never ceased working. And they let foreign folks come in and sell on the Sabbath day, probably convincing themselves a compromise. Well, we won't do the selling. We'll just swing by and buy some things. They're really the ones doing the work. But what Nehemiah was saying is that you have settled down in the ordinariness of life. You have so compromised that God's law about the Sabbath has fallen on really hard times. In fact, he uses the word, it has been profaned. When I think about the term profaned, I'm reminded of of just after Hurricane Harvey, large groups of people started to come and work from mine and Ashley's home to take care of our neighbors who had flooded. And one of our neighbors that had fallen on hard times, they'd taken on about two feet of water and they were trying to figure out what to do, with, what, what to do next. We actually got to serve them and help them move and find a new home. And, and as we were moving them in our attempt to help, something really sad happened. Their house was kind of in disarray. It was a mess. They hadn't really cared for things. And what we didn't realize is that a lot of their furniture was actually really valuable antiques. Solid wood antiques, some of them 150 and 200 years old. But volunteers in their eagerness moved this stuff out and were rough with some of it. Some of it got gouges in it. Some of it was broken. It was a really sad experience as I was talking with this family and realizing that in our attempt to help, we had done a disservice. And that tables, they had a table that had been worth about $25,000 that we did real damage to. And as we worked through that with them, it was a painful experience to realize that some of these things, like their value has been significantly decreased because of the way these things were handled. That, that sadness as it dawned on us, that reality, that is the profaning. The Sabbath day is this gift from God that's really valuable, priceless even, that he's entrusted to his people. And he says, you've mishandled it. You haven't realized what I've given you. And you've, you've kind of slung it around here and there. And it's come away with gouges and it's broken. And it's no longer as beautiful and valuable as it once was. It's just another day of the week. You just keep on working. You never stop. And as a result, the rest that I want to deliver to you the ways that I want to tend to your soul and keep you healthy over the long haul, it has been profaned. It's, it's, it was a, a really valuable antique, and now it's like a throwaway Ikea table. That this day has just been absorbed into the week as one more in the rest. What's the point? The point is this. If we don't operate with our work in alignment with God, we will do great disservice to the gifts He's, in, he's intending to give to us. Where is it really difficult for you to turn it all off? Where do you struggle to turn it all off? Is every day just the same because you've so filled your life with activity and work that you just keep going and you never actually rest? 
emails late into the night, your smartphone always with you as you're scrolling and responding? Uh, Is it that work has slowly taken over? You see, God has commanded for your good that you preserve a day, that you rest truly. Now, I'm I'm convinced that the right application of the Sabbath principle is not that we are strict Sabbatarians and we don't lift a finger for for one particular day of of the week, but I will say this. It is still true that God values the Sabbath. He's entrusted to it for our good as something that's incredibly valuable. And quite frankly, I think because of our desire to to secure our future, to to work hard and to achieve, that in many ways we we have profaned what God has intended. We We have damaged something that was intended to be really valuable in our lives. Um, Is the day of worship, this day as we gather, you see point one and point two are linked because where continual cleansing of worship, where we don't continue to prioritize worship and make sure that's in its proper place, all of a sudden other things begin to flood in and reorient our days and we, the work never stops and we just keep grinding and we operate like it's all on us. We're missing God's provision and God's care. And so my invitation to you is to consider, where do you need continual cleansing as it relates to your worship of God and the prioritization of that? And how does that affect your ability to really rest and to preserve a day where you worship and you set your affection on God and you rest and you're reminded of his provision and you don't walk around feeling like it's all on your shoulders all the time? Nehemiah comes in and is serious about it. He's urgent about it, even going outside the walls and saying, listen, if you keep doing this, I'm going to lay hands on you. Nehemiah is bold because what he realizes is that what's being profaned, the value of the thing that is being affected, it's it's going to negatively affect everyone. So he's he's willing to be urgent and aggressive. You see, if we are going to be a people that stave off compromise, if we don't renegotiate at a soul level, we're going to need continual cleansing in the area of our worship. We're going to need continual cleansing in the area of our work, taking seriously our need to rest. And lastly, we need continual cleansing in the area of our love life and our family. Let me, let me finish this passage for us, reading 23 to 31. It says this, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of of each people. I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. Nehemiah has upped the ante one after another. He threw the furniture out of the temple. He threatened when it was the Sabbath, and now he is actually beating these people. The text is not making this prescriptive, but it is describing the zeal with which he is approaching this issue. And it says this, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember 
them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering at the appointed times, and for the first fruits, remember me, O my God, for good. There's lots to be said here, but let me just make a couple of final notes. You heard it in this final, this final portion that the folks were, were intermarrying. They're marrying people that weren't worshipers of Yahweh. They weren't equally yoked in the worship of God. And as a result, their children were being raised in homes where they weren't even learning the kingdom language. They weren't being raised up to know and to love God. And Nehemiah was hugely concerned. Compromise that starts to settle in actually will begin to disintegrate the actual building blocks of our community, striking right into our homes themselves. Let me just make a couple of notes here. One, to my single friends. There is one question you need to ask when you're wondering, should I date or marry this person? Will being with that person cause you to love and to serve God more wholeheartedly than if you weren't with them? That is the primary and first question that has to be asked and answered. Compromise begins to settle in in the ordinariness of life when we just start to long for a companion and we're willing to say, you know what, I'll renegotiate my convictions to meet these needs. Continual cleansing in the area of our love life. To the married couples and the moms and the dads, would you be willing to raise your children up to leverage the ordinary, to realize that you have the opportunity to teach your children kingdom language when brushing teeth, when folding laundry, like these ordinary moments where we may be tempted to think, okay, I'm going to get us to worship every week. I'm going to make that priority. And that's a great start. But it also has to reshape How do we live together as a family? How are we raising our kids up that they would learn the language, that they would learn how to respond rightly? Continual cleansing needs to stave off compromise as it relates to our love life, as it relates to our family, the raising of our kids. Well, we've seen so much together in the book of Nehemiah. There's as, as we survey the landscape, all that Nehemiah has done and all that he's doing here in this final chapter calling us to continual cleansing, to holiness, even in the ho-hum moments of life. I just want us to feel one final time that, that Nehemiah was unable to accomplish all that a great leader could and would accomplish. That, that Nehemiah showed up and he found a compromised people and he was actually trying to beat them into obedience. He, he gave them a righteous beating because they were compromised. But the struggle was Nehemiah couldn't change their hearts. And the reason they were so compromised is because their hearts were made of stone. They needed new hearts. But the beauty, I just need us to hear this, that a different leader showed up in Jerusalem. And he also found a compromised people. But when Jesus found a compromised people, he didn't righteously beat them. He's so aligned with them in their weakness that he received the righteous beating on their behalf. And not just a beating, but actually a crucifixion and a death that we actually have a different sort of leader that looks at us and has such compassion for the ways that we continue to compromise, the ways that we continue to renegotiate, that we are not people of wholehearted conviction and holiness. And he looks at us and he says, I will come and align with you. And I will absorb the righteous judgment that is due to you so that as you see me bleeding and dying, as you see the empty tomb, as you 
as you receive it and you begin to trust my love for you, you will have a new heart. And you, we, the people of Seven Mile Road, with new hearts beating inside our chest, going, oh, look at how he's loved us. As we see that and as we respond to that, we can do so as a people that say, and by the way, continual cleansing will be my story because I want to be near him. I want to honor him, not because I'm afraid of the beating that might come. No, 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 because I am so grateful that he was willing to step in and take that for me. I want to honor him with the whole of my life, my worship, my work, my family. It's all his to be continually cleansed, even in the ordinary ho-hum moments of life. May it be true of us to God's glory for the long haul. Let me pray for us. So gracious God and Father, um, we repent. I pray that even now, would you just take a moment to consider where has compromise settled in in your life as it relates to worship, as it relates to work, overworking, worshiping your work, as it relates to your family and the moments where you have, you've ceased to be urgent about the way that you're engaging with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or the way that you're loving your family and making the most of the ordinary moments? Where do you need to confess your compromise? And in that very place of confession, would you receive the grace and the love of Jesus knowing that he comes and he stands by you? He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't throw stones at you. He puts his arm around you and says, I love you and I forgive you. And now you will you receive my cleansing as we, as we take steps forward. Thank you, Jesus, that you've loved us that way. Help us to walk with you, not in compromise, but in continual cleansing for your glory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.